Welcome to the Back in Business podcast. I'm business journalist, broadcaster and intrepid podcaster, Mickey Clark. Intrepid? Intrepid? Yeah. He's well, it's a new world for me. He's back in business, grumpy old man. Um, but the other thing about him is he's dedicated to keeping the UK's pub trade open, of which more are coming Single-handedly. <laughs> Single-handedly, yeah. Uh, and I'm business journalist Liz Barkley. Now, we have a slightly different format for the podcast today, just one guest for an in-depth conversation around about the impact on small businesses of what's been happening. And maybe, if we're lucky, some crystal ball gazing as to what the future might look like in the small business sector. Uh, but Mickey, uh, before we move on to that, you've been away for a week. You abandoned us and went on holiday to yeah. Norfolk. Um, what was it? What was it like in Dorfolk? You know, we I I kind of seem to have been stuck here in London for the past six months. Uh, you know, how's the rest of the country faring? I, I think it varies from 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 place to place. I mean, a few weeks before that, I was in Yorkshire, and I found that a bit strange. But at that point, we hadn't seen any pickup in the amounts of, of COVID nineteen throughout the country. Norfolk, on the other hand, things were starting to bubble up. Um, and although Norfolk is a bit like Kent in that. You, you, people are, are, are taking precautions and they're, you know, the, the cases are not that overwhelming. The hospitals are not being overwhelmed. Um, but there is a strange atmosphere wherever you go now, particularly when you try and socialise in that, yes, people are keeping out of your way. There, there is the, the, the metre or two metre rule. But the pubs and the restaurants, I think, are finding it very difficult. And I also think, as someone who's been drinking for more years than I care to remember, that going into a pub now has become a much more I think it's 50 odd years since when I first started using the pub but I've been kicked out of more pubs in the past few weeks than I have in the previous 50 years um, you know they're either haven't got room because of the Covid precautions or as the other night we were in a restaurant got kicked out because it was it was approaching 10 o'clock and that took me back to the old days of course when they used to call time at two o'clock on a Sunday and 11 o'clock on a Saturday night and and generally speaking I think as someone who, who wants to support pubs and thinks they're a hub of the community I am starting to find it a bit difficult I'm finding it confusing following the rules I'm finding it difficult to phone up and book a table because having a pub you know going into a pub with a with friends is supposed to be a spontaneous thing it's a casual thing if you have to start booking tables and getting in at a particular time and leaving by a particular time, I think that takes a lot of the fun out of it. And as I say, I, I think without question, it's starting to affect the income coming through the front door for a lot of publicans, but their well, costs are continuing to go up. Yeah, and that's what and that's what they're saying. That's what restaurants and so on are saying around here, uh, yeah. local community around here. Um, not only do they have the 10 o'clock curfew, but in order to get enough people through in time, one uh, restaurateur said to me the other day, he's having to take on an extra chef. I, I mean, that's just got to yeah. be productive. I, I went into the old Neptune in, in Whitstable about two or three weeks ago with, with some of them, my family, and I'd, I'd sneaked off on my own and they followed me in. And we ended up sitting at the table, four of us, having fish and chips as you do. And during the space of 10 minutes, I saw three groups turned away because there wasn't enough room because of COVID-19. There was enough room in the pub and you could eat on the beach. But with the wind blowing from the east, who wants to eat on the beach? So you, you think to yourself, how much longer can a business go on 
turning that sort of money away. But it's what they're being forced to do. It's madness in terms of, you know, profit margins. Um, but, you know, you put it down to national health and, and you think, well, yeah, you've got to do it. But I can't see a lot of businesses emerging from this without either being unscathed or not opening their doors at all. Sorry, the dog wanted out. Um, <laughs> do, <laughs> do, do, do you think we're a bit hung up on pubs and restaurants, though? <laughs> because that's one of our favourite pastimes. You know, what about, the, what about the rest of it? What about the rest of the hospitality? It's, it's, it's a you big know, part of the... It's a big well, part of the industry. It's a big it part is. of the economy. I mean, hospitality and leisure are already lo losing, according to their own figures, something like £650 million a week. That soon adds up in terms of GDP. And you go through the streets, you know, every pub, there's a pub on most corners, certainly in the big cities. They struggle in the country, but they remain a hub of the local community. So I, I think, you know, yes, we do place a lot of emphasis on them, but they deserve to have that emphasis placed on them. And I think we're getting to the stage now where people are thinking, do I want this hassle? Do I want to run the risk of being in a pub and getting COVID-19? Um, because Sage seem to be frightening the life out of everyone. And people are getting torn as to what is the best course of action to take. And I, I don't think they're getting proper clearance from Sage the medical experts, the scientists, or the government? I think, though, that we do have to say that there are, there's a heck of a lot of other industries and sectors that are really struggling. You've got the events sector finding it impossible. And have been struggling for some time. You know, don't we can't put all this down to COVID. No, absolutely Retail, not. For instance, and I get that. Aerospace get that. have all been struggling. Problems there a long, long time before any of this emerged. But what COVID has done has brought the problems to a head. And I think that's that's where the industries are struggling to yeah, and, come to and, terms and find us. And, and I get that, I get it. that, I get that. But also, you know, you've got the theatres, you've got everything going on in the West End of London and, and in the middle of every, just about every big city up and down the country, you know, and, um, and we've got to have some sympathy for them because they are an important part of the economy too and bring in a huge, uh, a huge well, chunk I, of money. I mean, do, do you understand why the Chancellor brought in a scheme two or three weeks ago, which said that he would pay out and, and subsidise workers that are already in work. And then he brought out another scheme saying that he would support companies or businesses that were shut down or affected by COVID. He might just as well have kept the furlough scheme going on and targeted it at industries that needed it and not a blanket coverage. Well, I think we, we will talk about that. Um... We will talk about that with Miles Selick, who is on the podcast today from the City UK. Um, but I think, I, I know you're going to hate me for this. I do think it could all end on end in tears. Am I allowed to say that? He's not laughing. You're not laughing. Mickey. You talk, I thought you were talking to Mickey. I no, thought we I was talk, no, I was pop, talking. Pop habits I was talking. I'm always laughing. She knows it's not me. <laughs> Right, um, so we are going to talk about what's happening in our big cities and how they've been affected. And I think hollowed out is a phrase that is commonly used to describe how many of our city's centres might end up uh, boarded up if we this three-tier system uh, really impacts businesses, as you've been saying, Mickey. Um, and we will be talking to the CEO of the City UK. But jobs, jobs, jobs are in everybody's mind alongside the public health issues. And the jobs figures out this week didn't do much to lift anyone's spirits. So 
uh, let's talk to uh, Jyoti Rambi, who is our chief reporter. Jyoti, um, unemployment at 4.5% doesn't sound quite as drastic as I'd expected. No, but I think that's just the tip of the iceberg at the moment. So there are around 2.7 million people claiming benefits with almost 700,000 more who are who were jobless in September compared to in March. Um, now figures are showing there are new jobs being created and there are more vacancies, but economists are still predicting business closures. Um, now the furlough or the original furlough scheme, the end of that is fast approaching and it could push unemployment levels to nine or 10% over the winter. So it's not looking great. Um, I think that's a I think that's a bit of an understatement. But it's not just jobs, is it? It's self-employed people as well. I mean, we're dif differentiating between people who work for themselves and people who actually work for other people. So it's not just jobs where there's bad news. No, and the self-employment have had it quite tough, especially this week. So um, the figures released by ONS, so that's the Office for National Statistics, show that the number of self-employed people in the UK has fallen by a staggering 240,000. Now we've been saying that this sector is vital to the UK's economic recovery and the government needs to urgently look at offering better support. Now nearly a quarter of a million fewer self-employment means that's a, I mean, that's a huge loss of skills to the businesses when they actually need it the most like they need contractors to help them rebuild and re regenerate and i know this is something we talked about in our podcast last week um yeah and i think um i think mickey you know as a freelancer i mean you and i've been freelance for most of our working lives you know as a freelancer you do tend to get called in when your skills fit a gap a yeah. temporary gap that people have got and if you lose a quarter of a million and a lot more on top of that, I suspect, of freelancers who are contractors in everything from IT to new digital skills to artificial intelligence, heaven only knows what. There's going to be huge gaps there when businesses start to regrow. Liz, this isn't all down to COVID-19 again. This is a problem that we should have been confronting or our politicians should have been confronting back in Tony Blair's day, that the economy's changing, we need to change with it. We need for people to get into, you know, technology, computerization, aerospace. Those are the jobs where they're crying out for vacancies. Plus the fact we need plumbers, bricklayers. Forget all the, the university courses for degrees of things that are, you know, going to be not pertinent when they leave, leave university. We needed to be retraining people donkeys years ago. We didn't do it. And business itself has to accept a lot of the blame for this because business has been gorging itself in the past 20 years on cheap labour from particularly Eastern European countries. And now they're finding that all of a sudden the tap is being turned off with that and they're going to have to look on you. And what you need to have done is 10 years ago started investing in technologies that can replace these, these people on minimum wage, but then create new jobs elsewhere. And we haven't done it. We've taken the short-term route, the easiest route all the way along, and, and as I say, ghost ourselves on cheap labour. Let me bring, let's bring in Miles Selleck um, at this point then from the City UK. Uh, Miles, the City UK is probably not something everyone has heard of, but it was set up 10 years ago 
off the back of the last recession to help think about how small businesses might recover in the city of London, but uh, I think the remit is much wider than that now. What about that point that businesses have been gorging themselves on cheap labour? We haven't done enough to skill up. We haven't done it, put enough money into training, etc. My problem is that I feel that we haven't been thinking far enough ahead. I think I think it's uh, it's it's absolutely one of the key challenges uh, that the the industry, the financial and professional services industry, is facing alongside the rest of the economy. It's it's where does the next generation of talent come from? And there's a lot of work that's been going on on that. And I'll, I'll I'll come to that in a minute. But just one of the things that one of the things that Mickey said that I'd like to to pick up on, which I think he's absolutely right about is that these issues, these challenges about skills, about labour, about the future of city centres, town centres, haven't suddenly come up as a result of COVID. You know, these are challenges that have existed for some time. Um, COVID has acted as an accelerator. Uh, you know, what you tend to find, if you look at this historically, every major public health outbreak, every major plague, every major illness that's come along has acted as an accelerator for economic trends that had pre-existed or technological trends. You know, we're having a, we're doing this as a Zoom call. We're doing this conversation as a Zoom call. Chances are we'd have done that as a Zoom call maybe 10, 15 years down the line in terms of the way that things had uh, developed. Uh, that uh, we'd evolved more slowly, people had got used to it, technology had changed, culture had changed, and so on. And in essence, we've concertinaed that evolution that, as I say, may have taken a decade or more into a few weeks, in some cases into a few days. I think there's a couple of things that, that drop out of that. Firstly, actually for most, for many companies, not necessarily most, but for many companies, it's been, a, uh, it's been a pretty easy transition. Now that's more difficult if you're in retail, if you're in the sort of pubs that Mickey was talking about. But clearly there's been an enormous impact uh, in those parts of the economy, but also it will act as an accelerator. The thing about accelerating change like that is the advantage of, uh, uh, of stretching out change over time is that you've got time to adapt. You, people have time to re uh, retrain to develop new companies to uh, uh, start new product lines whatever it may be when you concertina that you get that kind of growth for pain that comes so the ability to adapt is going to be something that's going to be much much harder it's going to be much more painful in many cases uh, and that I think is where it's incumbent on industries like the one that I represent but also on governments and whether that's national whether that's local whether that's regional whether that's devolved in fact, I was having this conversation with a member of the European Parliament this morning. You know, we're not we're not the only country going through this. These are challenges that are national, regional, international, and indeed global. And so I think it's incumbent on all of us, whether we're in the private sector or the state, to work together on these. And COVID nineteen is is a game changer, isn't it? I mean, it's a game changer for all of us. And as you say, it's being compressed. Liz said about you know differentiating between pubs and and restaurants and perhaps we're over egging it, but the point I was trying to make was that these businesses, unlike theatres, and they've been shut down completely. I understand that, but the pubs and the restaurants, we're saying to them, well, come on, you've got a paddle, but we're going to take all your income away from you, and you can't expect businesses to survive if you turn off the tap as far as income is concerned, which is exactly what these measures do. So I think one, one, of, one of the challenges here is the furlough scheme has been, uh, when, when you talk to, to small businesses or uh, uh, organisations that deal with small businesses, and I suspect you've heard exactly the same, 
the furlough scheme has been sing the single most important thing for most of these companies in terms of keeping going. And then alongside that, what the government's done, uh, and I think it's absolutely right to have done it, uh, is set up these uh, schemes, these lending schemes that have allowed companies to have the access to cash to, to keep going through the crisis. Now, I think there are a number of questions that come from that. One is how long does the furlough scheme, uh, in, in whatever format or whatever incarnation uh, it goes into, how long does that go? Uh, where is it targeted? I think it's interesting, again, if you look at the European example, I think I'm right in saying the Germans have announced that their slightly more targeted furlough scheme is going on till 2022. Now, some cynics have pointed out that there's a German election next year, uh, so you can draw your own conclusions. Uh, but there is clearly an aim in a number of European countries to uh, to look at how they can drive that furlough scheme. The, the uh, loan schemes that have been created were absolutely right in terms of government and uh, the regulators getting behind that and the industry supporting those to give companies cash. But again, further down the track, what you run into is the possibility of an unsustainable debt burden that is going to be problematic for companies as they look to the recovery and how you invest into the recovery. So. The government did the right thing in their winter economy plan about extending the uh, the terms of payment, extending the amount of time that you've got to repay there. And that buys companies time, it buys them a breathing space. But these are fundamental issues that we're talking about in terms of how the economy adapts uh, as we move into, into what the future looks like. So just a couple of points from what you've just said, Miles. Um, so re regarding cash flow, um, it's great that we've got the bounce back loans and the grants, but part of the problem is small businesses and self-employed are struggling to actually access those. Now, just this week, Metro Bank became the latest lender to stop opening new accounts for businesses. Um, and that's partly because there was a surge in demand for businesses seeking those bounce back loans. Um, Lloyds, Natware, Santander, they all put opening accounts on hold at the start of the pandemic. HSBC did that a couple of weeks ago and they also put on hold um, new applications for bounce back loans. Um, and that's a problem for small businesses who want to get access to cash funds they vitally need to survive. And, and Miles, those small businesses, you know, when you come down to it, are the ones that are going to take the risks and innovate if they've got the wherewithal to do that in order to help the scenario that you've just been uh, yeah. talking yeah. about. And, and, and look, you know, in terms of, of what the industry has done uh, working with government on this, uh, the, 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 it's been an, an, an enormous heavy lift. I mean, it has been a national effort. And I think from recollection, there's been more than 57 billion uh, that's been lent uh, into companies since the start of the crisis. I think one and a quarter million loans that have gone into small and micro businesses. Um, and clearly we need to make sure that the, uh, the, the, the loan support uh, is there uh, and the support for businesses is there uh, as the crisis continues. I think one of the challenges here is when we started out in March, nobody knew how long this was going to go on for. And you could argue we still don't. You know, a lot of this is going to depend on how long it takes to get a vaccine in, in, in place. A lot of it is going to depend on how deep uh, any recession and how quick any recovery are going to be. Um, and that then creates uh, the challenge, Liz, that you've identified, which is if companies are sat with an enormous amount of debt, uh, you know, small businesses are sat with an enormous amount of debt on their balance sheets, it's going to be very difficult in some cases for those companies to invest into the recovery. 
to you know take on new employees, to open new product lines, to expand uh, what they do. Uh, so this is where our view from the industry is it's absolutely vital that the government, that local governments, devolved assemblies and industry uh, work together to figure out a way to avoid that because otherwise we're just hamstringing the recovery. Uh, this will act as a, a drag anchor uh, on companies as they try and, uh, uh, and make their way forward. Um, and it will make, uh, make it much, much harder for small businesses to play their traditional role which is one of the biggest drivers of employment in the UK. Can I uh, ask something that I've been wondering about, and Mickey, you know more about this than I do. Are there big, big businesses? We've got about 8,000 big businesses in the UK, and we've got about 35,500 uh, medium-sized businesses, and the rest are small. But are those big businesses, the big guys, sitting on reserves of money that they're simply not going to spend until all this uncertainty stops? In which case, again, that would be a reason why we're losing self-employed out of the sector, why small businesses are not uh, doing as well as they perhaps could do, because the guys who normally pay for them, contract them, subcontract them, uh, employ them, are just sitting on that money till they see what's going to happen. I, th I think it's, it's a difficult picture. You, you have to take each, each company and each sector they're in um, differently, um, different aspects. I think a lot of the big companies, judging by the amount of FTSE 100 companies that have slashed or done away with their dividend altogether, would imply that either there is a cash shortage or they are conserving cash. Because I think these COVID restrictions frighten the life out of all of them. And what you're seeing now is a huge pairing back. You've seen it, a classic example, Marks and Spencer, which had already dropped out the FTSE 100, gone into the 250. And it's then turned around and say, right, we're closing stores, we're laying people off, we're going to slim down for the future. And of course, I think that that's right the way across the country with its engineering, retail, and the fact that they've been slashing the dividends does suggest. And I think it's, it's more than half of FTSE companies have so far cut the dividend. I've, I've just plucked that figure out of the air. There have been some updates, but I know it's a high figure. So they're not paying. So shareholders are suffering as well, which means savers will be suffering which means pensioners will be suffering. And that's when the knock-on effect, you know, ripples right the way through. And, and to, to bring on a point that Josie made just now about bank bounce-back loans and, and the like, what I'd like to know, Miles, perhaps you'd have a better idea than me, all of that is underwritten by the government. What are the banks actually doing during all this? Are they giving out loans? So the banks are giving out the loans, but it is underwritten, as you say, by the government. Yeah, so there's a tax they're doing the guarantee. government's work. So yeah. they are, it's the fastest way. Uh, so again, if we go back to where this started back in March, you know, there was no time to set up a, a, a government structure here or a whole new government bank. You do it through the lenders. Now, that's the banks, it's the building societies, uh, it's the various non-bank lenders that existed out there. So you utilize the pre-existing mechanisms, the relationships that already exist between a bank uh, and the company, the SME that, that uses the bank um, uh, as its lender. Uh, so the banks have put the structures in place. There's a 100% guarantee for the bounce back loans. There's a 100% guarantee behind them uh, from the government if the company goes under. So this is a really important point. Which is so this is easy peasy for the banks. It's not easy. It's not easy peasy for the banks. The and the the point is that that um, guarantee only comes uh, into action if the company fails. 
So if the company goes under and the, and the loan is therefore lost or the bank has to foreclose on the company, it then goes to the treasury and the treasury goes, there's, there's the 100% guarantee uh, behind the bank. In essence, that's, that's how it operates. So, the, so does it affect the tier one capital of the banks? In other so, words, the money they have to put aside to cover the loans they're making in case they go wrong? So it sits on the balance sheet, uh, but the, uh, in essence, the way the regulators operate is they're allowed to look through that, recognising that there is a government guarantee sat behind right. that particular loan. However, well, that's what I meant by easy peasy. Well, you know, it's, 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 it's government backing and the bank's capital. doing their... Yeah, it's easier in terms of your capital requirement. I think there's a genuine question here, however, about capacity, because if you look at the number of loans that have been put out, the extensions to loans and so on and so forth, you know, whilst it's not necessarily sat there on capital, you know, we do need to be careful that we're not creating additional burdens in terms of just capacity uh, for, uh, for comfort, for banks and others, for the building societies and so on, uh, when it comes to, um, uh, uh, when it comes to the sort of the operational side uh, of driving into the recovery as well. Um, can, I, can I just shift the, the topic ever so slightly? Um, we, we were talking about the hospitality trade. We talked about pubs and restaurants and Mickey's favourite subject. Um, but joking aside, how important is that to the City of London, say? You know, we think about the City of London as being a financial area. We think about Edinburgh as, you know, as being a tourist place and a financial area. But the City of London itself, you know, it is a financial area. It's where the big banks sit. It's where, uh, you know, you've got the headquarters of, of great big corporates. How important are those pubs and restaurants, that hospitality trade, to a city centre like that? Um, it's, 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 it's the same whether you're in the Square Mile or in Canary Wharf or in Manchester City Centre, Edinburgh, which you've I, I identified. You know, these are, uh, these are businesses, you know, it's the... the, the as people have talked about, it's the sandwich shops, it's the it's the hospitality industry, it's it's restaurants, it's hotels for people who are coming in for meetings or whatever. So those are are really important. But the the one of the key things here is 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 it's not just that side of things. Um, it's you know if you think about the banking industry, the insurance industry, asset management, law firms, professional services firms, they also rely on lots of small businesses that might be doing tech, they might be doing data, they might be the creative industries. You know, this is, this is sorry, accountants. Yeah, accountants. Accountants. Exactly. You know, yeah. and so you are you are dependent on the people who set up your website, who uh, come in and you know uh, look after the the building for you. So this is all part of a really closely integrated ecosystem of economic activity. These cluster effects that you see that big cities are absolutely fantastic at. So if you're London, if you're Edinburgh, if you're Paris, Berlin. That's why people come to cities. London, for instance, is the highest concentration of high-skilled jobs anywhere on the planet, 1.7 million people. And so being able to drive that, um, being able to bring that together drives the economy uh, and drives opportunities for small businesses that can provide those services that are so needed by the big businesses. So the question, from, it's, it's, the, question the next question for me then is, if we lose that, um, A, what do we do to the whole of the UK? So let's say, you know, if we're just focusing on London for the moment, and I know there's lots of other city centres that will be affected too. But if we, if, if we were to lose that, how does that affect uh, the whole of the UK? And the point 
uh, that I always worry about when we lose skills is can we get back what we need? Can we reshape to a workforce that really then thrives again? So the question, the question here is adaptation. Uh, so really, it's how do you how do you adapt to this? And uh, so if you look at the um, so there's a there's a really interesting uh, guy called Professor Carlos Moreno who um, is at the Sorbonne in Paris, and Anne Hidalgo, the mayor of Paris, uh, is 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 really interested in in what he set out. And again, he was talking about this before the crisis, and he talks about this concept of the 15 minute city, which is that you should never be as a citizen, somebody living in a city. You should never be 15 minutes, uh, more than 15 minutes walk or bike ride away from your key leisure, your key retail, your employment, if at all possible, etc. And so one option here, one possibility is that we see something that looks much more like a, select, a collection of villages setting up a city. So you might have a, a focus of economic activity that can't be moved in places like the Square Mile, Canary Wharf, uh, uh, the financial district in Edinburgh or wherever. But otherwise, for, for, for other people, for, uh, for the rest of the, the city, uh, for the rest of your economic activity, you have this sort of village basis. And actually, British cities, in essence, grew up that way anyway. If you look at the history of London, Manchester, Edinburgh, it's a series of villages growing into towns that then grow into cities as they, as they come together. So it's possible that we could be looking at a sort of back to the future uh, for, uh, for the way that, that cities operate. That's the positive interpretation. The negative interpretation, if we get this wrong, um, is that we see this massive sucking out of activity, um, of economic activity and jobs out of city centers, and that sort of detrimental impact that you've, that you've set out. Uh, and it's far too early to say uh, which direction we're going to go in. But I think the positive thing here is that we are able, between what government does, what regulators do, what businesses do, I think there's an opportunity to look at this, to build back better, to use a, a term that lots of people are talking about, and to look at what we can do in terms of making more sustainable cities, more livable cities, better quality of life, and drawing on exactly the kind of expertise and drive and energy that exists in the small businesses that will be the drivers of growth afterwards. So not only people working in the square mile, people living in the square mile, making purchases in the square mile so the whole thing becomes a lot more comprehensive as to what it's offering because i can go back to the days in in the 70s and 80s where the square mile was literally just that the square mile now you've got canary wolf and you've got other parts of london um because of technology you don't have to be that close together you know things have started to spill out but certainly you know house prices you can put that down to the fact that people want to be in london but they've yeah. still got to commute in and they're still wasting a huge amount of time traveling. And, and the other thing, Miles, I wanted to ask you this week, the thing that really made me groan was the emergence of what politicians do best. They play politics. And this week we've had it with the government and the different mayors around the country and different attitudes. They seem to be playing politics at the expense of people's health, which is going to rankle eventually but you've heard manchester say no we're not going into the tier three system and london almost jumping over hoops to get to it um it's a very weird situation is it has this been bringing introducing mayors and local government has it just made the situation more complicated 
so, I mean, I'll, I'll give a personal uh, uh, view on this, which is that um, the, the uh, you know, certainly what we've seen in terms of engaging with metro mayors, uh, with um, the devolved assemblies and parliaments in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, um, is that people have, have had a fantastic ability to go, right, this is the impact in our local community. So, you know, Andy Burnham is able to see exactly what the situation is uh, in Manchester. Andy Street in Birmingham, able to see what the situation on the ground is in Birmingham. Nicola Sturgeon doing the same in Scotland. So there's, there's far closer uh, uh, engagement with the, uh, the potential impact uh, on that part of the country. So, uh, you know, we've spoken to, for instance, the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Welsh Assembly in terms of the, the potential impact of, of unsustainable debt on companies in those parts of the country. Um, in terms of, the, uh, of what that means on the, the public health impact, I mean, I'm, I'm not a government spokesperson. I can't talk about how they've, how they've found that and what that's meant in terms of how they engage with it. I do think, though, uh, that it is important that whatever government does, excuse me, and business should be doing its best to support this, is to ensure that people don't become disillusioned uh, or lose discipline uh, uh, or lose sight of what we're trying to achieve here, because uh, the job situation is absolutely vital here, the economic situation is absolutely vital here, but it's all coming from a major public health crisis, and that's what we've got to address. Um, but on, on saying that, Miles, um, you know, our, I, I was going to say people are becoming increasingly sceptical about the government's ability to stop the economy derailing. Um, yes, of course, there is the public health side of it that has to be addressed as a matter of priority. But um, if people lose faith in the government's ability not to derail the economy, that's going to have the same effect, ultimately, is it not, than loss of trust and confidence in our ability to contain the virus. And, and, and this is the balancing act that, that governments all over the world are struggling with uh, and I suspect will struggle with for some time still to come and if you remember you know at the start of this crisis there was a sense that the the Swedes a lot of people thought the Swedes have got this completely wrong um, and they hadn't gone for national lockdown uh, and now some people are pointing to the, the Swedish example as something the UK should have done or other parts of Europe uh, should have done. I mean, the reality is certainly in, in, you know, whenever we've looked at this and looked at the international comparators, every economy, every society is going to have to approach this in a way that makes sense from their own perspective. Um, but there is certainly, uh, uh, I think, a, a, a growing sense that there are public health implications and a growing recognition that there are public health Im uh, implications to the economic side of this. So to shut down economies, if you create long-term mass unemployment, then there are public health implications to that as well. So this is a balancing act. It's you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that it's not one that I'm having to balance out myself. Well, a lot of people have said that the public health measures and the economic measures are seem to be competing against each other rather than complementing, um, and as a result, that's why businesses are suffering. Now, just today, about a couple of hours ago, I think. Lancashire has now officially been moved into the tier three um, section, so they've got the highest restrictions alongside Liverpool. Now, we're looking at loads of, or potentially loads of job losses again here because of the effect that's going to have, particularly on the hospitality industry. I know we've touched upon that already. So how do you combat that? What can you do that will help businesses survive? 
so I, th I think it, I think it comes down to two things. It's the it's the measures that government can put in place uh, to support businesses through the crisis, uh, and then it's the measures that we need we all need to put in place and need to identify uh, in terms of what is going to work best um, in terms of how you how you drive the recovery. Uh, and you know, when you think about previous, and this is going to be unlike any other recession we we've, we've previously seen. But if you think about previous recessions, it's, it's avoiding what, what some economists call permanent scarring. So it's that loss of, and, and, and Liz, you were talking about this earlier, it's that loss of skills, um, it's that loss of capacity, it's that loss of uh, uh, investment into growth companies uh, because they can't take it on because they're, uh, uh, they're, they're struggling under too much debt. So for, for me, this is the, the absolute time that um, organisations such as mine and yours uh, ought to be engaging with government uh, and throwing in innovative, creative, radical initiatives at them uh, that reflect the experience that you're hearing in terms of your, uh, the companies you deal with day to day uh, of what's going to make the most impact in the short term and what's going to help the whole country return to growth over the longer term. Well, thank you, Miles, for, for saying that, because that's exactly what we're, what we're constantly trying to do. Sometimes it's not very easy to get uh, an ear of uh, ministers at the minute, simply because everybody seems to be so busy. There's so much thinking going on that it is really difficult. But, uh, but if you were to say there is one thing I want you, Rishi, Rishi Sunak, to do, what would it be? A great question. So for me, it would be to uh, work with um, uh, with small companies, medium-sized companies, large companies, civil society, uh, to bring together a holistic, um, uh, integrated, thought-out view of what does this economy look like in five years' time, ten years' time, as a result of the changes that we're going through. And COVID is part of this. The technological acceleration we're seeing uh, and the social acceleration that we're seeing is part of it. Brexit and the consequences of Brexit are a part of this. I think it would be terrific if the Treasury and the government were able to say this is the kind of economy we're building and this is the sort of um, uh, uh, input and the, the sort of support that we need uh, from business and this is what we will provide to small, medium and large businesses to help drive the economy in that direction. I think this is a real opportunity to have a national conversation, a national discussion about what kind of country and what kind of economy we want. And that's what I'd want the government to lead on. Um, well, we've, we've started it here. That's it. We've started the conversation. <laughs> so hopefully we'll manage to get... Time for the pub now, though. <laughs> <laughs> says, says, uh, says Mickey, that's where he always wants to go. Uh, Miles, thank you ever so much for joining us. I know we could carry on this conversation for the rest of the day. Uh, it's been absolutely terrific to talk to you. Uh, Jyoti, anything else to bring us up to date on before we go? Um, so I just mentioned Lancashire. Um, we're also hearing or that Wales might be going in what they're calling a firebreak lockdown, which will mean businesses will have to shut. Um, I think that's pretty much most things. Um, the one thing to note though, HMRC is um, starting its post-payment compliance checks um, to stamp out misuse of their schemes. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> Give us that link. Table door, all spouted. <laughs> so, so for example, when the um, self-employed income support scheme was announced, um, HMRC sent out loads of letters to people who they said would be eligible for the scheme. Now, it has admitted that it sent out around about 100,000 letters 
to people who had actually stopped trading and about 30,000 of those went on to apply for the scheme. Now, of those people... I shouldn't be laughing because it is fraud. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, dear surprise, me. surprise. But, um, just wait for it. It's determined that only 6,000 of those were actually eligible for, um, for the grant. So it's writing to the remainder 24,000 to check if they were actually eligible. Did you apply for a loan? <laughs> and I suppose what they're, no, no joking, no joking. If, if you have had a grant when you shouldn't have had a grant, then you've got to confess by the 20th. Yeah, they'll have uh, you. They'll get you. And we're, and we're recording on Friday. So that means the day after this podcast is posted, you have to let HMRC know. Actually, it's you... 20th of November. Oh, 20th so, of November. Yeah, great. so people yeah. have got a bit of time if they want to avoid any penalties. Fantastic. Just, you have been warned. Yeah, but if you do get a letter, the main thing you have to do is prove that your income and work was affected, and that's kind of the only criteria. Okay. Well, thank you ever so much for that. You have been warned. Uh, Mickey, what are you up to this week, other than going to the pub? Uh, I don't think I will be going to the pub. I'm going to stay at home and save some money, I think. I could save a lot of money during that period. <laughs> Is that tenor still in your, your wallet? You know, the one that Declan managed to extract from you on the very first podcast at the, at the beginning of that May. That was a white fiver. <laughs> that was a white fiver. Bank of England, I promised to buy, pay the bearer. That's the next thing, of course. We'll have no cash. Cash is going. Well, uh, there are a lot of people working behind the scenes to try to keep it for people who definitely need to use it and there are still lots of small businesses that definitely uh, depend on cash anyway we're bringing shops in there we've got to we've got to leave it we've got to leave it there otherwise we'll be here all afternoon <laughs> it's been a great conversation and all our podcast conversations interviews with politicians blogs and so on are on our website at backinbusiness.org.uk and if you want to comment if you want to take part find us on linkedin and twitter at business underscore backing or email us at contact us at backinbusiness.org.uk. Thank you.